at the risk of coming off as overly reductive, one can divide the episodes that I do for this show into two categories. The first would be films that are, to borrow the Criterion Collections mantra, culturally, technically, or aesthetically significant. And the other is just movies that I personally liked and watched over and over again. Death of Smoochie is clearly the second one. When the film bombed when I was a teenager, I fell in love with it on home video, watched it over and over again a whole bunch of times, and assumed that at some point or another it would find its audience and become some kind of enduring cult staple along the lines of, say, Clue or Office Space. And it's been a little over 20 years at this point, and I don't think that's happening. But since this is my show and I talk about whatever the hell I feel like, we're doing a Death of Smoochie episode. And in fact, this is our second take on it. The, the file for the first one was corrupted a bit, so this is a do-over. Yeah, hopefully, I think at this point, Ryan and I are much better podcasters and hosts after, like, what? It was almost a year... Um... Yeah, it was like a year ago we recorded it, right? Yeah, give or take. We've yeah. done a few dozen episodes since, so we're yeah. super professional yeah, now. Yeah, we're very professional now. And although this is something that Ryan picked, Death to Smoochie is actually a Rachel pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although he picked to re-record it, so now it's like 50-50 now. Yeah, at some point or another, this yeah. is going to appear on the show, because this <laughs> means a lot to too many people in my personal nerd circle. Oh, yeah, uh, I love it. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive, and uh, Rachel has already introduced herself. Yep, Welcome back. back, Rachel. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, when did you first encounter Death um, of Smoochie? Because you're a few years younger than me, yes, so yeah, you yes. weren't a teenager when it came out. No, I, I like to say that you and I are close enough in age that we get like the same pop culture and references, but we did not watch the same cartoons growing up, right? That's a decent way that's to a, leverage that's a that. That's a good way to, to, to put it. Actually, it's kind of a sad story, but I feel like we got to bring it up now. Um, I watched Death of Smoochie my senior year of college, and it was a few months after Robin Williams' death, and I watched it with a friend at the time who was a huge Robin Williams fan, and he'd never seen it. And I hadn't seen it, and so we just put it on and watched it, and we laughed and laughed and probably cried a little bit, too, because, you know, everyone loves Robin Williams. Certain scenes in this film read very differently now that we know how Robin Williams' story would end. Yeah, I I agree, and I think that it does cast a bit of a pall over the film for me. As much as I love Justice Mochi, and also all Robin Williams movies, like, it was like an emotional moment. It's like, Robin Williams, I love you, and I'm sorry you were in so much pain. I have yet to been able to revisit the Fisher King since he's uh, passed away. I uh, that one's gonna be rough. Yeah. All right, but we're doing death to Smoochie. There's a lot of other weirdly uh, talented people in this movie. All right, plot recap. We open with Rainbow Randolph, a corrupt alcoholic host of a popular kids' TV show. Played by Robin Williams. Yes. An FBI sting exposes how Randolph takes bribes from parents who want their children to appear on the program. I just, sorry, I just gotta interrupt. I just love that when the FBI agent lady, she's like, freeze, cocksucker. I like how when they <laughs> open the, the suitcase, it's just like... Monopoly it's, money? <laughs> yeah, it's just like wads of $10 bills just scattered around with like little rubber bands on it. It's not like your typical movie suitcase full of corrupt money. Uh, well, I mean, in my job, we check 20s. I don't really check 10s unless it looks a little suspicious. Randolph is subsequently fired and thrown out of his penthouse. Completely destitute, Randolph moves in with his former employee, Angelo, who reluctantly accepts him out of pity. KidNet, the network, their executive, Marion Stokes, tasks cynical producer Nora Wells to find a squeaky clean replacement for Randolph. She settles upon Sheldon Mopes, a naive and painfully sincere entertainer who performs for recovering drug addicts as Smoochie the Rhino. Played by Edward Norton in what a, I don't know, I feel like such a bizarre role to see him in. My cousin Jennifer, she has a huge crush on Edward Norton. Understandable. And it didn't happen because of Fight Club or any other movie where he's like shirtless and ripped. It was this. Because she had just settled down and started a family and maybe she just likes Edward Norton being a little more paternal you know and friendly. It, it, it really is nice to be attracted to a man and realize that he's a provider. He's caring. You can trust him to babysit some kids. It's nice. I can understand why your cousin was like, aw, Sheldon. <laughs> Nora is contemptuously doubtful of Mopes, but the Smoochie show becomes tremendously successful. It's it- so endearingly pure. A bitterly jealous and increasingly delusional Randolph begins a vain series of attempts to sabotage the program, most notably replacing the cookies. 
in a sequence with different cookies that are shaped like penises. Oh my god, it's so funny because Robin Williams just goes off on like listing every single slang term for penis and balls. It's kind of like the dead parrot sketch, but you know about dicks. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like, what's he like, Mr. Huevos and the Boys or something or what is it? Yeah, one-eyed wonder weasel. One-eyed wonder weasel, and all the kids are like laughing because you know everybody thinks dick jokes are funny. It's the oldest joke in the book, really. Um. I was about to say <laughs> it, the, the very instant that the very first Paleolithic man rendered any kind of artistic statement, it was almost certainly a dick drawn with a stick. <laughs> On some sand. Yeah, he was like, haha, look at that. <laughs> I just invented representational yep. imagery and it's my penis. Yep. Sheldon writes this off as a rocket ship, by the way. Yeah, he's like, it's a spaceship, and all the kids are like, hee 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 hee, because it, it's obviously a, a dick. Anyways, Sheldon is angered by losing creative control over his show to Nora and being expected to endorse smoochy merchandise that compromises his humanitarian beliefs and vegan lifestyle. Yeah, he doesn't want the kids to have anything with, like, sugar. With the assistance of a shady agent named Burke Bennett, Sheldon renegotiates his contract and becomes executive producer of the Smoochie Show. The, the producer, Burke Bennett, is none other than the director of the film and beloved actor, Danny DeVito. And this is the second Danny DeVito directorial effort we are covering on this show. Yeah, and the funny thing is, every time I watch That's a Smoochie, I always forget that it's Danny DeVito. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck are you doing here? He's a more distinct director than people give him credit for, but we'll get back to that later. Meanwhile, Sheldon unwittingly earns the admiration of Spinner Dunn. His cousin, Irish mob boss Tommy Cotter, strong-armed Sheldon into giving Spinner a bit part on the show. Oh my god, I love, what's the name of the boxer guy again? Spinner. Spinner, I love him, but I feel so bad, like, that guy's got, like, CTE something fierce. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of jokes made at the expense of people with brain disorders that probably wouldn't fly terribly well if it was done in this day oh, and age. Oh, I agree. Although I'm sure it got complaints back then, or at least it would have if anyone had actually seen this movie. More on that later. At first, Spinner is sort of like this safari guide who's given a cowbell, but he ends up driving Tommy nuts because he won't stop playing it. So they decide to make yeah, him also, Moochie the Rhino yeah, instead. Yeah, he, he also has, like, no rhythm at all. Uh, Moochie, Moochie, he's mauve, while Smoochie is pink. Yeah. This is important, as you'll find out later. <laughs> uh, Sheldon's relationship with Burke sours when he discovers that Burke signed him up for an exploitative ice show. Nora, who is beginning to warm up to Sheldon's sincerity, points out the ice show with jaded dismissiveness. Sheldon tries to back out, but is threatened by children's charity gangster Merv Green. <laughs> He's played by Harvey Feinstein. <laughs> I know, he's, he's got the Harvey Feinstein voice, too. <laughs> That's actually not a bad impression by your standards. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Nora, however, begins to thaw. Under the pretext of getting him to perform for sick children, Randolph tricks Sheldon into appearing at a neo-Nazi rally. <laughs> Which felt very quaint in 2001 and very prescient now. Yeah, now it's just kind of like we, we live in the age of the, you know, insurrections and Sasha Baron Cohen almost getting murdered by white supremacists for Borat, too. Yeah, I'm just amazed that they, that they really liked Smoochie. I mean... Anyway. <laughs> Sheldon loses his job through the bad publicity by being connected to these white supremacists, which I'll also feels you. very quaint. Yeah. And alienates Nora. However, Randolph overplays his hand when he approaches Nora with the assumption that he's getting his show back. Randolph accidentally reveals that he set Sheldon up and, with some persuasion from Tommy Cotter, publicly admits his manipulation. Now a pariah, Randolph exhausts the last of Angelo's patients and is thrown out of the apartment. Sheldon and Nora consummate their attractions shortly afterwards. It's honestly a pretty funny scene because he's still mostly in the smoochie costume, and it's like one of those outfits that you definitely need someone to help you in and out of it. So, like, 
from behind the curtain, you can see their shadows, and, like, Nora gets naked pretty quickly, and, and she's got to, like, tug the smoochy feet off of Sheldon. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty well-done scene overall. Yeah. Just the way that the characters were talking to each other as she was taking off his big floppy clown shoes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sheldon reveals to Burke that he has reconsidered doing the ice show, but Burke is horrified to discover that Sheldon intends to cut out the corrupt charities and give all the profits to drug rehabilitation efforts. Burke and Green conspire to kill Sheldon and replace him with a more compliant entertainer, but the plan backfires when Green's men kill Spinner by mistake, because they didn't specify which rhino they were supposed to shoot. Yeah, which is why just like, he's pink, and it's like, no, he's the mauve is, is moochie. <laughs> moochie is burgundy! Yeah, I know! <laughs> he's plump. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, Tommy has Green executed shortly afterwards and promises to protect Sheldon because she knows that the hit was intended for him. I just love the scene at Spinner's funeral where they're, they're obviously Irish Catholics and they're like, you know, they're praying and he's just like, we're going to find him, cut their balls off and shove them down their throats. And, and Sheldon's like, shouldn't we let the police do that? And and then one of the mobsters is like, yeah, they won't do the ball thing for him. And then Tommy Cotter's like, may he rest in peace. And then he's like, all right, let's go get wasted. I'm like, yep, that's an Irish funeral for sure. Completely unhinged, an armed Randolph confronts Nora and Sheldon at his former penthouse, which Sheldon had moved into. Didn't he, didn't he replace some of the art with like a rhinoceros? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Such a good detail. <laughs> yeah, uh, Randolph reveals that Nora used to be a kiddie TV groupie, which Nora writes off as youthful foolishness. Randolph then breaks down utterly, allowing Sheldon uh, to wrestle his gun away. Feeling sorry for Randolph's state, Sheldon offers to take him in and help him recover, and this instantly wins Randolph over. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but... The movie does really go out of its way to keep Randolph sympathetic, even if he does try to essentially feed Smoochie to Nazis. You know, he's not evil. He's just deranged and not a nice person. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely mm -hmm. lots of moments where they pump the brakes on Randolph because, like, DeVito clearly wants you to eventually accept Randolph's redemption arc mm -hmm. so that he can't do anything too bad. I remember the first time I watched the film with Sylvan, and they're doing the cookie bit. Yeah. Sylvan was like, oh, God, did he poison the cookie? I was like thinking that he put, like, a laxative in the cookie. The first time I watched it, too, I was not expecting a penis cookie. Yeah, and penis cookies are more endearing than poisoning the yeah, children. Yeah, yeah, like you can't poison the kids. Once you fuck with kids, then you're a bad person. After learning of Green's death, Burke partners up with Stokes. They hire Buggy Ding Dong, a heroin-addicted <laughs> former kitty host, to assassinate Sheldon at the ice show. Buggy tips his hand by making allusions to Nora and stealing Angelo's pass. The latter act spurs Randolph to break into the ice show after Angelo calls him in an, in an attempt to rescue Sheldon. Randolph struggles with Buggy over the rifle at the ice show, resulting in Buggy's death. I never got to see Venice! He screams as he plummets yeah. through the ice. <laughs> Furious at Burke's betrayal, Sheldon confronts Burke and Stokes in an alley with a gun. He's about to kill them, but Nora and Tommy arrive in time to prevent this and save Sheldon's integrity. Sort of. You know, Tommy winds up taking care of yeah. both of those guys on his behalf while he looks the other way, which is a bit of a moral compromise, if you ask me. Yeah, but honestly, do you really think that Tommy would have had it any other way? These are the people who are responsible for her cousin's death, and she's already, like, a terrifying mobster lady. Yeah, we'll get into the various edits of that scene <laughs> later on. Because they trim things considerably. Yeah, you Anyways, that one of them is John Stewart the whole time. Oh, yes. We'll bring that up in the casting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the final scene is a fully redeemed Randolph starring in an ice dance alongside Smoochie. It's cute, and they play a nice song. Yeah, Jackie Wilson's Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher, which is one of the all-time perfect R&B pop songs, Oh, I yeah, think. whenever it plays at work, I just think of, hey, it's the song from the end of Death to Smoochie. Oh, and a cover version of <laughs> Ghostbusters 2. I haven't actually seen Ghostbusters 2. It's not that good. That's what I've been told. I mean, if you grew up watching it over and over again from the ages of, like, 4 to 13, I find that people in that situation seem to really like it, but... I didn't like Ghostbusters 2. 
uh, production for this film. Death of Smoochie was filmed in New York City in 2001. It was moved to Canada in the spring. Most of the studio scenes were shot in Toronto, presumably for price reasons. No shots were altered after 9-11. This is particularly noteworthy when you notice the North Tower being briefly visible in the scene where Randolph is dancing in Dwayne Park. My thought on that. I think that if you're filming something that takes place in the in the time period for the World Trade Center to exist, or you filmed them at some point, I think that it's disrespectful to remove it. I can understand why you want to be sensitive to that kind of stuff, but you know it was a tragedy that happened, and you know all of those people that died, all the LV, you know, effort that went into building it in the first place. I just think that it's kind of like almost a little too oh we can't have any controversy hand holding so i'm glad that they kept it in yeah more or less on the same page as that mm -hmm. especially since we you know have several decades of hindsight commenting on this oh yeah uh, edward norton composed all of the smoochy songs norton always tries to get more involved in uh, the productions of films than actors traditionally are for better and, and for worse yeah, when he deals with certain bigger studios, like, say, Disney, it doesn't usually work out his way, but... They're like, goodbye, bing, flick him off into the middle distance. By most accounts, his contributions were welcomed in this. I think his smoochy songs are adorable. Honestly, I really like the one it's like, My sad, sad son, me, and he's just adjusting. And then he ends it with, like, if the stepdad is mean to you and your mom... What number do you call? 911! <laughs> yeah, he's ever abusive. It's just this <laughs> nice combination of naivety, but also an earnestness. He's aware that life sucks, but he wants to think the better of people. He wants to do good. Yeah, Smoochie's motto is you can't change the world, but you can make a dent. Mm -hmm. uh, the ice skating scenes were choreographed by a gentleman named Elvis Dogeko. He was Robin Williams' stunt double for most of those scenes as well. The smoochy costume was initially orange, but they shifted it to a louder color because it contrasted with the background shots more effectively. Yeah, also I feel like orange is kind of almost a sickening color. Pink is nice, assuring. This movie was made very quickly. Adam Resnick's screenplay was finished in the year 2000, and they were shooting this in 2001. Yeah, that's fast. I know movies that have basically stayed in production hell for years upon years. Yeah, so everything went into the right place for him if, mm -hmm. you know, the movie had actually been a success. Speaking of infamous bombs, Rasnick also wrote Cabin Boy with Chris Elliott. I have no idea what the fuck that is. Uh, it is an early 90s, like, anti-comedy film. Oh, uh, there are telling me there. Yeah, there are certain people who believe that the film is an unrecognized classic that's years ahead of its time. Personally, I found it to be an endurance test. I couldn't get into Cabin Boy. Yeah, I don't even know what it's about. Uh, now, Resnick also wrote for David Letterman and The Larry Sanders Show. I think both of those fingerprints are all over this. Uh, the name sounds familiar. Do you know what else he's done other than Death to Smoochie and Cabin Boy? I couldn't find anything else I recognized aside from this stuff. All right, cool. Uh, Danny DeVito approached the direction for this with a very film noir style. There's a lot of heightened elements, and one of DeVito's key tricks is occasionally just jolting you awake with a random cut to some extreme close-up of an object in order to, like, hey, you didn't expect that to happen. It definitely feels like a noir, like with the plot, all the, you know, the mobsters, assassination attempts, vying for the beautiful woman... Yeah, it feels like a, you know, a mistaken identity. It's far. And there's there's plenty of set dressing that mm -hmm. implies that sort of thing as well. Plenty of outdoor scenes where there's just far more steam billowing out of grates than you reasonably could expect. But it's atmospheric, so let it go. Yeah, I was like, I guess New York City looks like this. I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> yeah, and there are a number of Godfather-style montages thrown throughout. Yeah, that's yeah. the only scene of The Godfather I have actually watched is... Uh, the assassination scene at the at the end of the movie. Yeah, as we mentioned a couple times before, Godfather's on the list. It, yes. I think it'd be a good idea to do it with somebody who's never seen it already. But hey, me, yeah. out. we need to like schedule a day for that's just the Godfather day. Yeah, that's that's going to be our whole <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> 
Okay, anyway, enough tangent. Yeah, for the altered scenes, there was an extended execution scene for the Merv Green character. Just like a slow motion crawl of the blood from Green's decapitated head coming across Tommy Cotter's face. And DeVito changed his mind and decided that that was a bit much. I, I have to agree. Like, this movie is very dark. But I think that that's just slightly too much. Like, it's you do see his head fall off, but to think that's enough. Mm-hmm. But I think anything else would have just been a little too, I don't know. It would have crossed the line. Because this movie sits on the line between, I think, absolutely hilarious and Jesus Christ, what the fuck am I watching? And also, when Burke and Stokes are finally defeated, Nora and Sheldon just sort of wander off as Tommy closes in on them, and you, you don't really know what's going to happen to them. The last thing she says to him is like, hey, boys, have you ever traveled together before? <laughs> that scene is initially a little bit longer, where Sheldon and Nora are walking away, and then they hear loud gunshots in the background. They pause for a moment, and Nora goes, eh, they were assholes anyways. DeVito decided to be better off if they didn't know what happened to them. Yeah, again, that might be a little bit of a cop-out, but it's also, I feel like if they had said that, they're just speaking to what the audience will have already interpreted from the whole movie, that they are assholes. Yeah, that does play into uh, the moral compromises that are expected of Sheldon throughout the film's narrative, but Mm -hmm. I'll dive more into that when we get to the thematic bits. First, the cast. First off, Edward Norton, who was approached to play Randolph. I feel you'd be an entirely different movie because at this point you've seen Edward Norton be super deranged and kind of violent. So you just feel like you're watching another version of, you know, Fight Club. I've never seen American History X, so I'll just assume that he's pretty deranged in that one, too. Yes and no. Uh, If I ever do American History X, which I have mixed feelings about, we can get into that more. But yeah, those are the sorts of things that he's primarily known for going into this, so this is considered something of a change. He's nice. When DeVito was talking to Norton about appearing in the film as Randolph, Norton, who had read the script, is like, you know what, I think I'd I'd work out better as as Smoochie. And initially, Danny DeVito's response was, no. And then he's like, yeah. Because (laughs) even though... <laughs> Even though Sheldon is supposed to be this sweetie nice boy, he still has this aura of menace underneath. Yeah. He mentions he in the does. film without any expansion that he ha- had to take anger management. Yeah, and he also almost calls Nora a bitch, but I feel like she's almost impressed with that rather than intimidated. <laughs> yeah, he stops himself with a, a little, like, mnemonic device called HALT. Yeah, I know. He, he, he's been to, wait, we talked, he's clearly been to therapy. The smoochy persona is part of a coping mechanism, and the film only gives you bits and pieces of that, which, uh, at least to me, uh, is more intriguing than if they just dump the whole thing on you. Yeah, I think it's nice to kind of be able to figure things out on your own. All right, next up, uh, Robin Williams is Randolph. He found this role very reflective of his early stand-up routine, which is very manic, very coked out. Yeah, I think the last... I did see um, Weapons of Self-Destruction, which is a stand-up special that was, I think, came out uh, either right around the same time as Death's a Smoochie or slightly after. And it is very, like, manic and kind of dark, too. Because at that point, you know, 9-11 has just happened, And he's making fun of George Bush. You know, George Bush hadn't quite stepped in it yet. (laughs) Williams has cited this as part of what he calls his Dark Trilogy, because it came out roughly at the same time as One Hour Photo and Christopher Nolan's remake of Insomnia, where Williams is playing malevolent characters in both. Mm -hmm. Smoochie is probably the one I've seen the most often out of those, but all three of those are pretty good movies. I haven't seen either of them. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, Gary Robin Williams frightens me a little bit. I'm like, I I don't want to see that. I mean, this one, he is like basically a nut. But as we talked about earlier, Rainbow Randolph isn't a bad person. He's not, well, he's not evil. He is a bad person, but he does try to redeem himself genuinely and has his moments of pathos. 
You know, Catherine Keener, when she was talking about Williams on set, she remarked that she brought her young daughter on uh, because, you know, she just wanted to show her what mommy did for a living. Mm -hmm. And Williams has a sort of dick that he does around small children. <laughs> he was very on. Uh -huh. And at some point, the, the kid looked up at him and he's like, that's enough. And he immediately stopped. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Oh, I think probably the funniest story I heard about actors bringing their kids on set it was Jamie Foxx said like that he brought his daughter on the set of Django Unchained and everyone kind of groaned and he's like I know I know but I wanted her there and she was really little at times and she kind of understood a little bit about what the movie was about so when he brought her on the set of Annie she kept waiting for like so daddy when does Annie get a gun when, when did your character start shooting people? And he had to be like, no, not all of Daddy's movies. He has a gun. And I was like, that's actually really cute. <laughs> Another thing I read from Williams was when he was doing promotional interviews for this. Several people asked him if he kept the Rainbow Randolph jacket. <laughs> uh, he said no because he had things that were far more flamboyant in his closet. It was a bit redundant. Uh, you know what? I, I believe that. Uh, I believe it. Uh, yeah, getting back to it, uh, there is a scene in Death to Smoochie when Randolph is at his lowest moment. Uh, he yeah. stands in Times Square and threatens to immolate himself. And that scene wasn't exactly easy to watch beforehand, but now that it's a yeah. Robin Williams suicide attempt on the film, it, it can often stop one cold, yeah. especially if Williams is a childhood icon that you've seen in dozens of movies and feels like a distant he, family member. He, he was to me, right? And also to my mom. Like, she can barely watch anything that he's in anymore because of it. And I think it was, like, during our first attempt at recording this, you were like, you said that you're thinking, so stop, Robin Williams, stop hurting yourself for my entertainment. Uh, yeah, I was comparing that to uh, Terry Gilliam's remark of Robin Williams' character in The Fisher King having mm -hmm. a total breakdown, and Williams kept insisting after retake after retake because he thinks he could do it better. Uh -huh. And at some point, Gilliam stopped because the sun was going down and he was losing his light, but the real reason he stopped because he was just tired of watching his friend hurt himself. Yeah, I, I mean, the first time I watched this movie was a few months after he passed, and my friend and I, we were watching it, we were like, oh, no, luckily the scene, it's, it's long enough that it will really, like, stop your enjoyment of the movie, but luckily he doesn't immolate himself, and it's not that long of a scene, like, a little girl tries to stop him from doing it, but it is still kind of like... Uh, you can makes me sad. you can tell there's real pain behind his eyes. Yeah, I think it's a good place if you're watching it to go get a snack. Yeah. All right, then we have Catherine Keener as Nora, who I think is one of the most underrated performers of her period, and especially during this junction of her career, she was killing it. Like being John Malkovich is roughly at the same time as this, and Nora could have been a total stock character, but she is way more complex than oh, yeah. she needed to be, and She's a lot of that was Keener's delivery, I think. And I also really like the scene where, uh, what was it? It's the hippo. The hippo that she likes mm -hmm. as a kid. Yeah, Ricketts, I think his name Ricketts is. Ricketts the hippo. It's a terrible name for a character, to be honest. Ricketts the hippo. And she's just watching it. She's kind of teary-eyed. So you know that at some point before life wore her down a bit, she really was passionate about children's television, and it does have an important place in her heart. Yeah, that is something that often comes to my mind when I look at, like, say, corrupt politicians. Like, there was some point when that person was young and they entered that field because they thought that they could make a positive change mm -hmm. in all likelihood. That's what happened to them. Unless they're like Richard Nixon and they were just power-hungry jerks from the jump. Yeah, we're recording this a few days after Cuomo announced his resignation. Well, see, I'm originally from upstate New York, so I actually saw Cuomo speak in high school, and he was okay, I guess. And then I, a few years before that, I remember when Elliot Spitzer had to resign because he was soliciting sex workers. So both of the last two elected governors, not governors of New York, have been booted out because of sex scandals. I also think uh, Cuomo is, you know, he's part of a dynasty, so there might be an aspect of entitlement to him. He's like, I was born for this role. It belongs oh, to me. Oh, Give yeah, it to me. he did. He he was married to a Kennedy girl, and then he divorced her so he could date a woman who looks exactly like her. <laughs> 
Yeah, being a masshole, I am familiar with second and third generation Kennedys who feel entitled to positions of power and local government. <laughs> but we're going off track. Anyway, back to Death to Smoochie. All right, in addition to directing the film, Danny DeVito plays Burke in here, and he's essentially playing what you assume Danny DeVito is in everything. He's playing just like this scuzzy little trollish sleazeball. Yeah, except he's a little bit more well-groomed than, like, Frank Reynolds. And, well, he's not, he's, I guess, he's, yeah. he's greasier than Frank Reynolds. Yeah, he is. He's greasier than Frank Reynolds, but Frank lives in a, in a nasty apartment with his bastard son. So, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty basic part. DeVito can play characters like that in his sleep. So we're always happy to see him. Oh, yeah. DeVito's <laughs> another guy who keeps showing up over and over again throughout nostalgic childhood favorites. So feels like a distant relative in my parasocial relationship with him. I know. So there was like a photo shoot of him like making pasta and drinking wine. That was like, aw, Danny DeVito's like everybody's favorite Nano. Look <laughs> at him. <laughs> All right, next we have John Stewart. Who <laughs> Uh, Marion Stokes. Oh my god, he has the worst haircut. It's like the Grecian haircut, but it looks terrible on him. Uh, yes, it does, especially since most of my most vivid memories of Jon Stewart are like right before he left The Daily Show, where he, he kind of has the salt and pepper thing going on. So oh, it's yeah, just I'm, I'm weird here. seeing it. Yeah, it's weird seeing it black and also styled as bad as it is. Stewart turned the financial failure of Death of Smoochie into a running gag on The Daily Show. Stewart often blamed the film's disappointment on his own performance in it, probably exaggerating because he plays a pretty minor character in it. Yeah, I remember watching him host the Oscars in, like, I think it was 2003, 2004. He, he called himself the fifth leading man of Death to Smoochie. That was the first time I ever heard of the movie. And, and honestly, a brief tangent, I saw uh, John Stewart, he came to Hamilton College, which was local school to where I grew up, and he did like a, a whole stand-up bit. It was hilarious seeing him because he was not on TV, so he was allowed to say the F word. And speaking of costumed characters, the mascot of Hamilton College is a pig in a tricorn hat. And so the mascot started walking up the aisle, and just John Stewart's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stewart's not much of an actor, but he is a performer. Oh, so for sure. At least in this, he can be at least somewhat engaging, especially since this is another disposable character. He's he doesn't really to get to, yeah, he really him. doesn't get to perform. He doesn't really get to do anything. One person who does get to do things, however, is Pam Ferris, who is Tommy Cotter. I love Pam Ferris. She's one of my favorite, like, you know, British Isles character actresses. Yeah, she was also in the other Danny DeVito movie we covered for this show, Matilda. She's the Trunchbull, and it is impossible for me to picture anybody else playing that character. And this one... She's a little less on because she's affecting an Irish accent. It's pretty terrible, but I find it very endearing anyways because I am a fake Irish mass hall. I have heard worse. <laughs> I mean, didn't like what your great grandparents or something come from Ireland? Yeah, I'm like fourth generation, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm about as Irish as green beer. <laughs> No, I love her character, like, look. She's got bright, obnoxiously orange hair. She's always wearing a very tight dress, and her tits are just up in the air. <laughs> and she's just like, come on, boys, let's go. <laughs> yeah, when Spinner is, like, sobbing on her chest because, you know, she's he's like, Smoochie ain't no Nazi. Yeah. And, like, yeah, her cleavage is right there. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's clearly framed in that shot, so yeah, so it'll just be like yeah, cleave and laugh while that man cries. It's funnier because of the boobs. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, Michael Rispoli is the character actor who played Spinner. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I learned is that apparently Henry Rollins, lead singer of Black Flag auditioned for the part. He worked it into one of his spoken word lectures. He described it as his agent pushed for him to do the movie. He doesn't really consider himself an actor, but every now and then he shows up and stuff. And he really liked the, the, the screenplay for Death to Smoochie. He thought it was fantastic. Thought mm -hmm. there was no way he was ever going to be good enough to be in the movie. So when he went in for his audition, he had decided that since he's going to blow it, he's going to blow it in a way that will make Danny DeVito unable to forget him. 
And the scene that he was doing was when Spinner first recognizes Smoochie and just fanboys all over the place. And he decided he's going to act like a toddler and a sugar high. And he just... <laughs> first off, he goes in and introduces himself by just crushing Danny DeVito's hand oh, in the handshake. Oh, and you know what? Why not? And when he does, Spinner freaking out at, at Smoochie, he starts just, like, rampaging throughout the room, throwing furniture around. And if you've ever seen a picture of Henry Rollins, he's a big dude. <laughs> he works out, and he's shredded. <laughs> and at the end of it, Danny, Danny DeVito... Danny DeVito's, like, five foot nothing. <laughs> and at the end of it, Danny DeVito is hiding behind the desk <laughs> with, with a little video camera to record the performance. But apparently he really liked it because it came down to Rollins and Raspoli. And Raspoli, he kind of has, like, a sort of a goofy harmlessness to Spinner. Because, like, you, you have to feel sorry that Spinner dies, I think. Yeah, Raspoli plays this grown man with brain damage as <laughs> if he's reverted to the disposition of a particularly um a six-year-old yes <laughs> that's that's a way to put it and yeah there are definitely problems with that that i am not qualified to discuss at length mm-hmm. by all means look up or consult people who have knowledge about uh, disorders like that yeah. you know cte and all that mm-hmm. we've all learned a little bit more about that because of the whole NFL dodging uh, complaints about that sort of thing, but yeah, still the environment's a little different than when this film was made in. Something that we're going to comment on every time it comes up. Oh yeah. All right, but then we have Vincent Chavelli, who was Buggy Ding Dong, another very minor part. He <laughs> is definitely a is great. <laughs> he is definitely a that guy. Yeah. You might not know his name, but you have seen at least a few things that he's been in. He is best known for his roles in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Not seen either of those movies. <laughs> you probably like Cuckoo's Nest. Probably. Ridgemont High, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. But he, he's a very distinct person. Uh, he has Marfan Syndrome, so mm-hmm. that's why his face looks that way. But he's also really, really tall. That's like one of the signs of Marfan's is to have very long limbs. I think uh, Javier Botet, he's another... Um, hey, you've definitely seen him, but you don't know his name. He almost always is playing, like, creepy ghosts and, like, with long arms and stuff. Because he has, I think, Marfans or some other um, disorder that has given him that very distinct body type. Last person I want to mention is Harvey Firestein. <laughs> yeah, he plays the corrupt children's charity guy, Merv Green. and He's very against type. Yeah, this is a very different role for Firesteed. He's not camp. I mean, mean, this movie is campy, but he's not, like, gay in this. Firesteed can't help but be a flaming theatrical person, but he's trying to tamp it down and play a gangster. It kind of reminds me of an episode of the 1960s Batman show where Mm -hmm. they had Liberace as the bad guy. (laughs) And he plays two characters. The first is a show tune performer who's basically Liberace, but he also has an evil twin brother who's a gangster. So you have Liberace walking around doing really terrible James Cagney impressions. Oh no. It's delightful and it makes me think of Firestein. Yeah, this film. I mean, doesn't he also play like um, a medieval mobster in um, Robin Hood Men in Tight? Or is that somebody else? I'm, I'm confusing him. I have blocked Robin Hood Men in Tight. Oh yeah, I forgot. You so. don't like Robin Hood Men in Tight. I like it. So maybe that can be in another episode. I guess I have to torture Ryan, but we'll see. <laughs> Alright, reception for this film. As I mentioned several times already, it was a box office failure. Their budget of $50 million, it made 8.3. Not even one fit. Yeah. Adam Resnick audibly groans whenever he is asked about oh, it. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I would too. The film was hated by critics, bringing up Roger Ebert because I often cite his reviews in this. Mm-hmm. Only enormously talented people could have made Death to Smoochie. True. Those with lesser gifts would have lacked the nerve to make a film so bad, <laughs> so miscalculated, so lacking any connection with any possible audience. To make a film this awful, you have to have enormous ambition and confidence and dream big dreams. I feel like that's a very accurate statement. Why do you think it wasn't a success? I'm not sure. Robin Williams was asked about it, and he called it a weird, twisted little movie. Which it Uh, is. 
he gets why other people hate it, but he did point out that every now and again, somebody would approach him and say, I love Death to Smoochie. It's my favorite thing you were in. I mean, honestly, I almost, I was actually talking about this earlier when I was describing the movie to a friend. I said that if she liked Heathers, she would probably like Death to Smoochie because they're both funny comedies about dark subjects that haven't aged very well, Heathers especially. And there are little pockets of people that are super into this film. Uh, I don't I think it's ever going to be like a clue or an office space where it'll be seen as an overlooked gem by movie fans in general. But yeah, definitely in my social sphere, it's a big deal. And in a very limited social sphere, because Cheryl and Sarah have mentioned that every now and again, they will offhandedly quote the film in casual <laughs> conversation. And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, Cheryl will just go all. Oh, I always have the hammer, Tommy. <laughs> what does that mean? I, I feel like I haven't really shown it to that many people, but I would introduce people to it. And I have talked to other people who adore Death to Smoochie or will say, like, when they ask, like, you know, how are you? And he's like, well, I'm pretty fucked up usually, so I don't know. Though I'm kind of paraphrasing Rob Williams' carrot when he says, and he's just like, I'm usually pretty fucked up, so I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to gauge. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to gauge. <laughs> The film did get some award attention. Robin Williams got a Razzie nod for Worst Supporting Actor. He lost to Hayden Christensen for Star Wars Episode Two. Yeah, I, I guess. But I feel like the thing is, Hayden Christensen played a grumpy, uh, sexually frustrated teenager, and nobody wants to watch that. I mean, I think Robin Williams is great in this. I kind of like seeing him just go completely bonkers. I mean, it's just kind of funny having him scream, Motherfucker! really loudly so oh i i crack up every time at a number of robin williams lines in this i'm going on safari motherfuckers (laughs) (laughs) well what is it he just like it's going to be a very special cookie time or something just when he's like literally ranting every different slang term for penis it's just funny welcome to fatty arbuckle land yeah i know like that is a that's a god tier reference right there (laughs) all right that brings me to themes first thing i want to bring up is venal exploitative kitty entertainment that goes throughout because we've discussed this on previous episodes most notably my little pony TV in general is something of a scam. It is just supposed to placate you, make you sit around long enough to watch the commercials. If the commercials didn't occur, then the show couldn't get made. And this does take on a sinister undertone when it's children's entertainment, because for a lot of children, they are too small to understand that the commercial endorsements that occur in between segments of the show and sometimes during the show aren't your friend in the magic box telling you about this wonderful thing. It is somebody throwing a pitch at you. They're not sophisticated enough to handle that, and it feels kind of gross. Well, this is probably where my parents only allowed me to watch PBS as a child. (laughs) And I have brought this up on a couple of other episodes, but there are studies that have found that children that have lots of media saturation that is filled with advertising often grow up to be pretty cynical. And anecdotally speaking, uh, that tracks with me. Oh, no. I was raised on PBS where all the commercials were like, this program is brought to you by the blah, 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 like fund for viewers like you. Of course, Whenever they did the fundraising stuff and they like you have to wait a half hour between TV shows, I would get really fucking pissed. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I did watch stuff when I was older, so at least I was aware of it. Yeah, I was brought up on stuff like Ninja Turtles, which is essentially 22-minute-long toy uh, advertisements. Yeah. And, yeah, that's affected me. And that sort of thing is positioned quite a bit in Death to Smoochie, especially since the filmmakers are baby boomers and older Gen X who grew up in periods where that sort of thing wasn't quite as prevalent. So they're just like looking at this creepy new thing that wasn't always there during their lives. And I think that contributes to a lot of how so many elements of this film just come off as unpleasant, especially to audiences who are not on board. Uh, all right, I have a group question. So Ryan's 80s baby, I'm 90s baby, but did you watch Barney as a kid? Like, I fucking loved Barney. I wanted to marry Barney when I was two. 
I was a couple of years too old for Barney okay. when he was at the height of his powers, which essentially made it mandatory for me to hate him. Yeah, but then you like, I mean, I hated the Teletubbies when they were on. I still kind of hate watch them, and now I like my sister loves the Teletubbies. So now and she's younger than me. So now we just make jokes about the Teletubbies all the time. But uh, did you? I mean, you have little cousins, didn't you? Like watch Barney with with them at all? Oh, or? Sarah liked Barney. She was just young enough to still be into the yeah, character, she and she was she was deeply hurt that the rest of us despise the purple dinosaur, <laughs> and we like stage murders with our action figures. Or, or rather, what sing all of like the you know joy to the world that Barney's dead. Like yeah, yeah I right, am not gonna sing the whole song, but yeah, my sister and I used to sing it. You know, as like. I don't know, cynical, uh, tiny, early 2000s children. But, I mean, I think it's kind of funny because when I look at Smoochie, I kind of see him as sort of like, oh, he's Barney. He's he's a Barney parody. Even Randolph calls him the bastard son of Barney, which I think is just one of uh, Robin Williams' best line readings in the movie. Well, that's the thing. The Smoochie show doesn't actually read all that much like a Barney episode. No, it feels very Toy Story, very like Mr. Rogers almost. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, like, even older. Like, it reminds me of, like, Captain Kangaroo and Howdy watched, Doody. Yeah, I barely watched Captain Kangaroo. My dad's like, I liked this when I was a kid. The, yeah, I think that's DeVito who's like, oh, kitty show. And then he picks something from his own childhood. Did you watch Sesame Street as a kid? Of course I did. Yeah, I mean, Sesame Street's been around for forever, so... And I do think that, at least in a little way, DeVito's background in children's entertainment, which, you know, getting back, childhood icon, he shows up in a lot of things I watched oh, when I was seven yeah. or eight. You know, Matilda, Space Jam, he's Phil in the Hercules movie. I know. Uh, Hercules kind of is also an attempt to comment on the crass commercialization of uh, material marketed to children, oh, while yeah. also existing as an example of it, which yeah. kind of compromised the film. Um, I had a baby Pegasus toy as a kid. Although, honestly, if they do make, like, a live-action Hercules, they should just, um, you know, have Danny DeVito come back as Phil, because I can't imagine anyone else making that character as good as he is in Hercules. I'm not crazy about Phil, but that's another episode. All right, well, well we can have a debate later. All right, uh, this sort of leads to my next point, which is in, uh, keeping one's integrity in a world that demands moral compromises. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think this is impossible. I think this is reflected sometimes unintentionally throughout the film's narrative, where Sheldon makes certain choices to look the other way, in which there is no particular good option for him. Uh, the murders at the end? <laughs> the murders at the end, for one thing. It's tough, because especially when you're young, and maybe you go through some stuff that results in you just hammering out a particular worldview, everyone wants you to fit into their own particular paradigm. There are certain boxes that everyone is going to try to squeeze you into for their own personal profit, and mm -hmm. there's only so much you can do. There's only so many changes you can affect on your own. There are so many forces that a sole person cannot affect on their own. It makes me think of, you know, the Stoics. And I'm not saying that Smoochie is Marcus Aurelius. He might have been <laughs> better off if he was, because even Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, was cognizant of there's only so much you can do. You do have a responsibility to do what you can, but you have to be able to distinguish what is beyond your power and to be okay with that. Yeah, and that will serve you when times are rough. All I'm thinking of, I wish I remembered what rabbi said this, but it's just like you are not obligated to complete the work but you are obligated to continue it. Yeah, that's another, that's a Femi Cuddy song as well. Uh, <laughs> do your best. You're going to have to leave the rest. You can't change the world, but you can make a dent. Yeah, I mean, I do think, though, is that even though the movie pokes a lot of fun at the idea that Sheldon tries to be so wholesome, it doesn't condemn him for it, because ultimately, he is kind of right. He does win. Yeah, he gets to go off and continue to make his good dent in the world. You know, some assholes got murdered by the Irish mob, but, you know, they were assholes. Uh, Death of Smoochie does take place in a heightened reality. Oh, uh, yeah. There are certain things that could never practically occur. 
And there are definitely instances where you can see the puppeteers and the strings in the background maneuvering things in the place just to <laughs> make it more um, streamlined for the filmmaking purposes. For example, Randolph never crosses a line in a way that makes it impossible for the audience to accept him when the ca mm. other characters in the film do. I agree, but also, you know, I don't really think that you'd want to really see him completely cross the line, because like I said, this movie sits on the line of being a brilliant dark comedy in Jesus What the Fuck Am I Watching? Which I feel like plenty of people probably do have that reaction to this movie, and that is probably why, you know, it wasn't as successful, because it is a very dark movie, and I think that maybe because, oh, it's about a kids' show, kids' show host, maybe people were under the impression that it was going to be more Mrs. Doubtfire than, oh my god, Robin Williams said the F word. And another thing that I wanted to touch upon was holding on to anger and bitterness, because that is what troubles just about every major character in the film. Oh, yeah. And their life improves immediately the second they choose to let it go. Because even if someone has hurt you very deeply, if you refuse to let that pass in any capacity whatsoever, you are essentially allowing them to live rent-free in your head. I come from an Irish Catholic background. I know what grudges are like. <laughs> so it is difficult for me to take this particular bit of advice as salient and honest and truthful as it does come off to me in most situations. It's definitely true because when you do forgive someone, in most cases, it's more about yourself than it is about them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just about covers everything I wanted to talk about for mm -hmm. this. Uh, is there anything about Death of Smoochie that you'd like to note mm -hmm. that we haven't touched upon yet? I, don't know, I feel we could kind of go a little bit more in depth as to why do you think it wasn't a big hit? Is it, did it just come out at the wrong time? I mean, I think for a lot of things, whether they're extremely successful or if they fail, it is definitely about timing. I mean, you can focus group something to death. You can put as much thought and care and prep into it as possibly as you can. The whole thing could just be like an objective banger, although that's not really a possible thing. But if it just comes out in an environment and it doesn't tap into the zeitgeist in the way it should, that might not work out. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that 9-11 is the reason why Death to Smoochie wasn't a hit, but I feel like at the time, people didn't want dark shit. Like, literally, my elementary school was like, we're not singing songs about Halloween. We're singing patriotic songs for the patriotic fall concert. You know, I, I remember it enough, I mean. Yeah, I do remember a uh, list that was made by, I think it was Clear Channel, they're called iHeartRadio now, mm -hmm. where they suggested that their stations pull certain songs from rotation yeah. because they thought it would evoke negative feelings about 9-11. Obadah by the Beatles was not allowed to be played after 9-11 because it had the line about how life goes on. Yeah, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff on there. Uh, yeah, uh, Gen Z and Younger, look up that list and have a chuckle. Oh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're rapidly approaching the 20th anniversary now, but I know, and like I said, I don't want to say that they're, they're connected, but it's such a huge cultural reset, and so many things changed immediately afterwards, including what was, you know, acceptable to put in a movie. I think the Death to Smoochie was just not at the right time. I feel like now it would be a little bit more successful, like maybe change some of the jokes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's also kind of like Arrested Development, and I think Arrested Development was 10 years too early for its, like, storytelling style. Okay, well, if that's that. Yeah, uh, that's that. Uh, that is one more episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, join us next time.